Now, I like reading the newspaper, and often on the newspaper, you'll find, especially in the weekend edition, that they have a full-page interview with people. Do you, do, you, do you notice that sometimes, you know, like this entrepreneur or some person, they'll have this one-page interview, and at the end of the interview, they always ask them this very regular thing, like if you could have a meal and invite three people, any three people, who would you invite? And, you know, often people will say, well, you know, I would like to invite this great celebrity or this great chef or this great politician or this great sports person, you know, to, to this meal, this dinner. Now, I want you to think about that question for a moment. If you could invite three people to have a meal with you, any three people in the whole world, in history perhaps, uh, who would you invite? Well, I think that uh, as we've read today's passage, uh, we might be very, very careful in terms of inviting uh, Jesus to that meal. Because Jesus, I think, would make the other dinner guests very uncomfortable. See, today, as we come to uh, John chapter 3, we have Nicodemus. And Nicodemus was a Pharisee, and he was a member of the Jewish ruling uh, council. So he was a very powerful man, a very respected man, a very religious man. And he comes up to Jesus, and he says to Jesus in verse 2, Rabbi, we know that you are a teacher who has come from God. For no one could perform the signs you are doing if God were not with him. Now, generally, if someone comes up to me and says, oh, you know, I, I think you are a very uh, accomplished person, Your God's working through you, you know, you couldn't do these things without God. Generally, what would you say? You'd say, yeah, thanks very much, you know, yeah, thank you very much, you know, you, 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 you've spoken correctly, you know, you, um, no, sorry, I'm far too modest, you know, for that and all that sort of stuff. But what does Jesus say to Nicodemus? And don't forget who Nicodemus is, he's a member of the ruling council, like he's the ruling elite in terms of a religious person, right, the religious body, Jesus says in verse 3 to him, Very truly I tell you, or Amen, Amen, no one can see the kingdom of God unless they are born again. And that is why it is so dangerous to invite Jesus to a dinner party with your two other guests, right? Because Jesus is not interested in small talk. He's not interested... In Manchester City versus Chelsea, he's not interested in the latest movie. He's not interested about whether the COEs are going up or down. He's just a one-topic person. And he's just interested in the kingdom of God and how to get in. And I think that maybe that's why, uh, if you were going to invite anybody, maybe you would just invite Jesus. Because really, if you were to have this dinner party and you invited a great sportsman, a great chef, a great political figure, a great celebrity, what would you talk about? Movies? How good the food is, you know, the gay, gay, I don't know how you pronounce it, right? The gay, oh, okay, don't know. Anyway, um, the way you make the food, you know, you talk about politics or sports, but you don't really talk about what really matters. And, the, and what really matters is the eternal things, the kingdom of God and heaven. So Jesus says to Nicodemus two times in verse 3 and in verse 5, the very same thing, right? So it's up here on the slide, okay? He says to him, in verse 3 and in verse 5, Very truly I tell you, on the, in the original language, Amen, Amen. Right? That means he's making a very strong point here. This is not just his opinion, but this is the reality. <clears throat> I tell you, no one can enter the kingdom of God unless they are born again, or they are born of water and spirit. Now, Jesus here is making a very absolute claim. Right? There is only one way for Nicodemus, there is only one way for us to enter the kingdom of God, or to even see the kingdom of God, and that is to be 
born again. Or to be born of water and spirit. Now for us, we would not be very familiar with uh, what Jesus is talking about. And Jesus expects Nicodemus to understand him. And I think he expects Nicodemus to understand him because in Ezekiel chapter 36, which is up here, right? Oh, okay, next one. Uh, Ezekiel says, <clears throat> God says to Ezekiel, I will take you out of the nations, and he's speaking to the Jews here after they've gone to exile, and I'll gather you from all the countries and bring you back into your own land. I will sprinkle clean water on you, and you will be clean. I will cleanse you from all your impurities and from all your idols. I'll give you a new heart and put a new spirit in you and I'll remove from you the heart of stone and give you a heart of flesh. And I'll put my spirit in you and move you to follow my decrees and be careful to keep my laws. Now this is a really offensive thing for Jesus to say, not just to Nicodemus, but to modern men, isn't it? Modern men and women. Because generally the world, by and large, thinks that we are good people. We are good people until we become corrupted by the world around us. We are good people until we are corrupted by maybe bad influences, or bad family upbringing, or maybe a lack of education. But Jesus is not saying that. Jesus is not saying that good people sin in spite of themselves. But what Jesus is saying is he's quoting back from Ezekiel and saying good, is that people sin because they are bad people. And they are bad through and through. Because here it says very clearly that, that God sees us in our default state. And our default state is that we have impurities, idolatry, and a heart of stone. Okay, a heart of stone. So next slide, this, this is... This is our congregation, generally. This is our congregation before Jesus, right? We're all having hearts of stone. And, and, and I think the picture of having a heart of stone is that people without Jesus are unresponsive to God. We are unable to obey God. We are unable to follow God. We don't want to follow God because that's who we are. Now, we think of it this way, right? We say people are hard-hearted, but God goes further. God says we are stone-hearted. And because we are stone-hearted, it's reflected in an in, in a inability to follow Him. Now, the problem with the stone heart is that you can't go to Guardian Pharmacy and uh, find a heart moisturizer to soften it, right? And neither can you go to Watson's and buy, buy some sort of uh, fish oil gel to, to soften your heart. But instead, what Jesus says to Nicodemus is that he must, he must actually come to God and be born again spiritually so that he may have a new nature, a new spiritual nature with a heart of flesh and with impurities washed off him. Now, I think that that is a really difficult thing for Nicodemus to accept and even understand. And it's very offensive. It is even offensive for the modern ear. There was a president of America called Jimmy Carter. And Jimmy Carter was a Christian and he said that, oh, you know, he was a born again Christian. And the, the, the newspapers in, in America didn't take very kindly to it because to say to someone, you need to be born again, implies that they cannot save themselves, that they cannot do the work necessary to be, to be saved or to enter the kingdom of God, that they need a fresh start which only God can give them. I remember at our church camp many years ago, there was a speaker called Rich Orr. 
Do you remember Rich? And he was making a joke that even Christians find it hard to accept the necessity, necessity to be born again. Uh, he was saying about how he, you know, he's American. He went up to someone and said, Oh, do you know, are you a born again Christian? And, and he said, No, no, I'm not born again. I'm a Presbyterian. <laughs> but, but to enter the kingdom of God is not a moral framework, right? some sort of religious system or philosophical, philosophical structure in which we have to, to, to do these steps in order to enter the kingdom of God. No, it's something which God does to us and for us. We need to be born again, given a new spirit, the Holy Spirit, and to be washed clean of our sins. See, you think of it, when you were born the first time, naturally, physically, right, when you began at year zero, what work did you do to be born? You did nothing, right? I mean, all you did was, you know, you were in your mother's womb, and then your mother carried you for nine months, and you're just sort of there, and then, you know, like, you, you just, uh, you know, your mom did all the labor for how many hours to expel you out into the world, right? Now, in, in the same way, we cannot work to enter the kingdom of God. We must be born again, and that, that can only happen because God does something to us and changes us and washes us clean and gives us the Holy Spirit. Now, for Nicodemus especially, it would be a shocking thing. Nicodemus would be, uh, in our world today, equivalent to someone lower, slightly lower than the Pope. Right? He would be like, you know, seen as a super religious person who takes the law seriously, takes obedience seriously, who had lived his life teaching other people to live it seriously. But look at what Jesus says to him in verse 7, very sh- sharply, right? You should not be surprised at my saying, you must be born again. Now, if Nicodemus, a person who is so steeped in learning and teaching, in obedience to the law, in the religious rites of the Jews, if he cannot save himself, and if he cannot enter the kingdom of God, then it applies to everybody, all the listeners, all of us here today, We cannot make our way into the kingdom of God. It is only through being born again. Being born of a a new spirit, having the Holy Spirit, being washed clean of our impurities. But how do we become born again? Right? What do we do? Like Nicodemus says, can we go back into the womb of our mother? No. How do we get the spiritual rebirth? Well, that's where verse 14 says, comes in, right? Because in verse 14 it says, uh, just as Moses lifted up the snake in the wilderness, so the Son of Man must be lifted up, that everyone who believes may have eternal life in Him. For God so loved the world that He gave His one and only Son, that whoever believes in Him shall not perish, but have eternal life. Now, verse 16 is the most famous verse of the Bible. right? John chapter 3, verse 16, For God so loved the world, that He gave His only Son. But you cannot really understand verse 16 without understanding verse 14. You know, many people think that, oh, the Bible is just John chapter 3, verse 16, sitting by itself, right? But actually, John chapter 3, verse 16 is part of the conversation Jesus has with Nicodemus, it's all one conversation. 
So the, to understand verse 16, you really need to understand verse 14. So what does Jesus mean when he says to Nicodemus, just as Moses was lifted, had lifted up the snake in the wilderness, so the Son of Man must be lifted up, that everyone who believes may have eternal life in him. Now, in, uh, when, when God had taken the Jews from Egypt to the promised land of Israel, he brought them through the wilderness. And uh, as they were going through the wilderness, God's people became very rebellious against God and against uh, God's leader, Moses. So God punished the Israelites by sending to them uh, venomous snakes. But God was merciful when the people cried out to God for mercy. He sent a solution. Okay, but it was a very, very strange solution, as we will see in, uh, in Numbers chapter 21, which recounts to us what happened. So if you look up here, in Numbers 21, it recounts to us what happens, but, but the solution is it's quite a strange solution. And when you read it as a Christian, you think, this is really weird. The Jews had traveled from Mount Hall along the route to the Red Sea to go around Edom. But the people grew impatient on the way, and they spoke against God and against Moses and said, Why have you brought us up out of Egypt to die in the desert? There is no bread, there is no water, and we detest this miserable food. So God had provided this, this miraculous food, right? But, but they wanted variety. They wanted something else, right? Then the Lord sent venomous snakes among them and they bid the people and many Israelites died. The people came to Moses and said, We sinned when we spoke against the Lord and against you. Pray that the Lord will take the snakes away from us. So Moses prayed for the people. And this is the surprising thing, right? Then the Lord said to Moses, Make a snake and put it on a pole. Anyone who is bitten can look at it and live. So Moses made a bronze snake and put it up on a pole. Then anyone who was bitten by the snake and looked at the bronze snake, he lived. Now what a strange, strange account. It's almost superstitious, right? It's almost superstitious that you get bitten by a snake, you look up at this bronze snake and you have life instead of death. So here's a picture uh, of uh, some painting that someone made of, I guess, a visual representation. Obviously, he wasn't alive when he was there. Right? He just painted it, right? But you can sort of think, well, you know, well, the people are looking at the snake. It's almost like a superstitious belief that the bronze snake can heal you. And indeed, when you read later on in the Old Testament, uh, the, the, the Israelites actually destroyed the bronze snake later on because people started worshipping the bronze snake. Because they saw the power to heal as not coming from God, but it's in the bronze snake. And actually, as a, just as a trivial thing, if you if you ever look at the Singapore medical, you know, uh, what do you call it? You know, those uh, symbol, uh, the symbol, the crest, right? Or, or the other ones. Sometimes you see this thing with the snake around it. That actually comes uh, from from this thing, right? So you know, they're all these superstitious doctors, right? <laughs> but what is this? What is this event actually looking forward to? Why does God create this strange occurrence with the bronze snake? Why doesn't he just say, Moses prayed, everybody gets better, right? Well, if you look here, Jesus says that God created this incident in the, in the wilderness to actually point forward to Jesus because by looking up at the Son of Man lifted up, people will not just get life, physical life, but eternal life. So you look at this picture, 
And then the next picture, you see there's a similarity, right? The people, instead of looking up at the bronze snake, they look up to Jesus. And by looking up to Jesus and believing in Jesus, they not get physical life, but they have eternal life. See, this is the heart of Christianity. The heart of Christianity is that we are born again by looking up to Jesus as He hangs on the cross and by believing in Him, we are given eternal life. The idea of being born again and the idea of looking up and believing in Jesus are synonymous and they they occur concurrently. But I think that as we look at this passage, there is so much more that is being said here. Because in verse 17 and 18, right, we actually learn that when it says, uh, okay, we will look at it, and, and we are, I want you to pay attention to verse 16, 17, 18, right? Because it's so full of meaning. Each word means something. So verse 16, For God so loved the world that He gave His one and only Son, that whoever believes in Him shall not perish but have eternal life. For God did not send His Son into the world to condemn the world, but to save the world through Him. Whoever believes in Him is not condemned, but whoever does not believe stands condemned already because they have not believed in the name of God's one and only Son. You see, when you read verse uh, 316, you think, oh, you know, God gave His one and only Son. But how did God give His one and only Son? He gave His one and only Son to be lifted up on the cross to die for sinful people. That's what it means to give. God didn't give His Son, just that, you know, He comes on earth and does a few things. He gave Himself, His Son, in death, a terrible death. Not just terrible because there's a crucifixion, but terrible because He frees us from our sins. But I think more than that, it shows us what our real state is. Right? Because in verse 17 and 18, it says, uh, next slide, right, that actually without Jesus, we are condemned already. We stand condemned. There's a parallel between verse 3 and 5 and verse 17 and 18, right? So verse 3 and 5, it talks about how, uh, you know, we need to be born again. Right? We need to be born again because we have hearts of stone. We have impurities, But here in 17 and 18, it tells us that we need to be born again the same way we need to look to Jesus because without Jesus, we are condemned already. The default state of mankind is to be condemned, is to be sinful, is to have a heart of stone. The default state of man is not that we are good people, that we are worthy, somehow we are corrupted by the world, but But our default state is that we are already sinners to the very core of our heart. And you think about it, in the normal way that we use the word condemn, right? Uh, Not not, in the Singapore, ah, you're condemned, you know, no. But I mean, in the real way of being condemned, right? It means usually we use it for somebody who has received the death penalty. right? So someone, a drug trafficker, a murderer, terrorist, gets sentenced to death and they go to prison. And they are waiting their execution. They are termed condemned. They are condemned men. Now, if you, if you happen to be condemned and you are in prison, how good do you have to be in order to be set free? Right? You are condemned. 
and you're really nice to people. You're really nice to the wardens. You're nice to your fellow prisoners. You're nice to the, you know, the prison uh, guards. No matter how good you are, you are still condemned. By being a good person after you're condemned, you still cannot be saved because that is your sentence. Well, in the same way, Jesus is saying the same thing, right? Our default state is that we are already condemned before God. And there is no good that we can do to save ourselves. But what is even more shocking is that men and women who are condemned are still deserving of God's love. See, when you read verse 16 again, For God so loved the world. The world is not a neutral term. The, the world that God loved was a world that hated Him. It was a world which was rebellious towards Him, which was completely against Him, a heart of stone, a world that was condemned. But yet God loved this world that was not lovable. I want you to think for a moment, right? It says, Therefore God so loved the world that He gave His one and only Son. Now, who would die for you? Maybe your, your parents would die for you. Would you, do you think your parents would die for you? Maybe a good friend might die for you, or, or, or maybe you know, someone, a spouse, maybe a husband or wife might die for you. But would your enemies die for you? Would people who don't like you die for you? People that you, that, don't, you know, that you don't like and they don't like you, would they die for you? Well, while we were enemies to God, while we were condemned, while we had a heart of stone, while we are full of idolatry, God loved us so much that He sent His Son to die for us. See, I, I, I want to show you this next slide. Imagine, right, oh, next one. Uh, next one. Okay, imagine instead, that's my name, but imagine if instead of putting my name, put your name there. For God so loved you that He gave His one and only Son that if you believe in Him, you should not perish but have eternal life. Well, when you put your name there, it is not as somebody who is lovable, worthy, good, honorable, but someone who is actually enemy of God, but yet God loved you so much that He sent His Son to die for you, that you can have eternal life. In verse 19 to 21, the, 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 the response to this love is really shocking. Because in verse 19 it says, uh, this is the verdict. Light has come into the world, but people love darkness instead of light because their deeds were evil. Everyone who does evil hates the light and will not come into the light for fear that their deeds will be exposed. But whoever lives by the truth comes into the light so that it may be seen plainly that what they have done has been done in the sight of God. Isn't it amazing? God loved the world so much that He gave His Son to come into the world, to, to die and to give the world life. But what is the reception of the world? How does the world receive Jesus? Well, it says there that the world rejects Jesus. And this is not a speculation, a possibility, but look at what it says there in verse 19. This is the verdict. This is the verdict of God. This is going to happen. 
And this happens because the world is darkness and the darkness rejects the light because it loves the evil that it does. Now this is really sad, right? Because in many ways I think it is a true reflection of what the world is like. That many times we try to share people uh, about the gospel of Jesus Christ and yeah, sometimes they couch their objections in intellectual terms, intellectual arguments, but many times it really comes from the heart, isn't it? A rejection of the light. That they don't want the light because they love the darkness. I remember listening uh, to this interview on the BBC once, and the BBC interviewer was interviewing this guy called Francis Collins. So Francis Collins apparently uh, was the head of the Human Genome Project. So he was the head of this, uh, this team that basically worked out the, the whole sequencing of the human DNA. Right? But this interesting thing about Francis Collins was that he became a Christian uh, after he became a scientist. So he, he was actually raised as an atheist, a secular person. And uh, after he became a scientist, while he was quite late in life, he became a Christian. So the BBC interviewer was interviewing him and uh, asking him like just general questions. And, and this Francis Collins was sharing about how he became a Christian. And uh, the BBC interviewer became quite unhappy. He became very skeptical and cynical. And he said things like, uh, is it really reasonable that you can actually become a Christian? How can you believe in this person called Jesus, right? And this Francis Collins said, no, it's very logical and reasonable. You know, surely if you can accept, you know, uh, historical figures and you can believe things about history, you can believe that Jesus is real and uh, there's you no know, evidence for all these things. But this interviewer, you could feel that he was getting very, very unhappy, and it wasn't just unhappy because it was an intellectual thing, right? But because it was a hard thing. And I think we've seen that many ha happen many times, isn't it? Because people feel very unhappy when you say you have to be born again. That you have to accept Jesus who died for you because it means that I have to acknowledge that I'm a sinful person. I'm a sinner. I do sinful things, not in spite of myself, I do sinful things because I am a sinful person. And people don't like to hear that. They don't want to come into the light. They don't want to be forgiven. They want to think that they are good, but actually they love the, the darkness. And this is not something which happens that God can't see, but this is the verdict of God. God says this will happen. The world will reject Jesus because it loves darkness instead. Now in verse 22 to verse 36, uh, this John the Baptist comes back into the picture. And the disciples of John the Baptist are getting very unhappy with the disciples of Jesus. And their main unhappiness comes in verse 26, right? So in verse 26, their main unhappiness comes because they say that everyone is going to Jesus. Right? They're saying like, hey, John, don't you see everybody's leaving church? Right? They're all going to this Jesus guy. You know, our finances are going down. You know, our intake is, is, is going down. But John the Baptist is, uh, is someone who actually reinforces and buttresses the testimony of who Jesus is. We've gone away from the conversation of Nicodemus now, and John the Baptist now explains his role in, 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 in sending all the people to follow Jesus 
and shows us why Jesus is so important, why we need to follow Jesus, why we need to believe in Jesus and look to Jesus. So I want you to pay attention now to verse 27 uh, to verse 36. Right? And I want you to see that actually John doesn't point to himself, but he points to the identity of Jesus and why Jesus is so important to us and that basically there's no one else you can look to. Right? So to this, Jesus, uh, John replied, A person can receive only what is given them from heaven. You yourselves can testify that I said, I am not the Messiah, but I am sent ahead of him. The bride belongs to the bridegroom. The friend who attends the bridegroom waits and listens for him and is full of joy when he hears the bridegroom's voice. That joy is mine and is now complete. He must become greater and I must become less. The one who comes from above is above all. The one who comes from earth belongs to the earth and speaks as one from the earth. The one from heaven, sorry, the one who comes from heaven is above all. He testifies to what he has seen and heard, but no one accepts his testimony. Whoever has accepted it has certified that God is truthful. For the one whom God has sent speaks the words of God, for God gives the Spirit without limit. The Father loves the Son and has placed everything in his hands. Whoever believes in the Son has eternal life. But whoever rejects the Son will not see life, for God's wrath remains on them. Now, as we look at this passage, John says, look, I am nothing, Jesus is everything. I'm filled with joy that Jesus comes and he is the bridegroom and the bride comes to him. It's almost as if, like, you know, I'm, I'm helping the bridegroom, but instead of finding joy in the bride and the bridegroom coming together, I want to elope with the bride, right? Uh, well, does it make sense? Well, John says my role is to bring people to Jesus, to bring the church to Jesus. And why? Because Jesus is the Christ. He is above all. He's the one from heaven. He's the one in which God has placed everything in his hands. And John's testimony in chapter 3, verse 36, I think to me, should be the most memorable verse in the Bible, right? But it's probably not because it's too politically incorrect. But verse 36 sums up everything that has come before. Whoever believes in the Son has eternal life, but whoever rejects the Son will not see life, for God's wrath remains on them. You see, if you look at this uh, picture, it sums up what John says, right? That in our default state, God's wrath remains on us. God's wrath is poured out on us, right? It's seen by the, the red... Uh, Lightning, right? Okay, But when Jesus comes and is lifted up on the cross and we believe in Jesus, God's wrath is lifted up from us and is placed on Jesus instead. And this way we have eternal life and enter the kingdom of God. See, ultimately, what is a true Christianity? It is to see that there is only one way to live and that is to follow Jesus so that Jesus takes our wrath away from us. So I was reading this book recently. My, my New Year's resolution is to read a lot of Christian books. I've got, got all piled over my house. If you, if you ever come, you can see they're all piled everywhere. Uh, my wife doesn't like it. But, but anyway, I was reading this book and uh, it, it shared three testimonies of uh, Christian people, right? So you know, usually you come to evangelistic service. People come to the front and they share their Christian testimony. So one testimony is this. I was struggling with my work. 
I was going bankrupt. I was deep in debt. I became a Christian and God made me successful and rich. The second testimony is I was depressed. Life was going badly. So many bad things were happening. My life was suffering. There were dark clouds over me. But after I became a Christian, the dark clouds went away. I was happier and I was more uh, fulfilled. The last testimony is this. I was respectable, happily married. I had a good job. But one day I read the Bible and I realized that I was guilty before God. I was a sinner deep in my sin and I felt guilty for living my life without God. Thank God that Jesus paid for my sin. I am now His follower. Now out of these three testimonies, which testimony is the, the, the biblical and I guess authentic testimony? Now testimony one and two can very well be true. Right? Yes, some people become Christians and they do become rich and successful. Some people become Christians and yes, their health does improve and their mood does get better. But does that happen every time? Does that happen 100% of the time? And the answer is no. Not every person who becomes a Christian will become rich or successful. Not every Christian will become happy. But what the Bible promises, what God promises, what John the Baptist sums up here is true. For every person that believes in Jesus Christ will receive eternal life and not have God's wrath on them. That happens every single time. And that is God's promise here. And that's the only promise here, isn't it? I remember uh, reading another book where there was this guy called Martin Luther. So if you've never heard of Martin Luther, you need to read a bit more of church history. Right? Because he's a very important person. Anyway, so Martin Luther had uh, this ministry intern, right? It's called Philip Melanchthon. I was going to say Nick, but it's not actually Philip Melanchthon. Right? And this guy, Philip Melanchthon, wrote to Martin Luther and said, oh, you know, there are these people coming to church, but I'm not sure they're really real Christians. So Martin Luther wrote back to his intern, Philip Melanchthon, and said, you know, do these people express real spiritual distress? Do they feel the weight of their sin? Do they feel the fear of God's wrath? Do they feel the terror of an awakened conscience? Do they know that they are condemned without Jesus? Because without that spiritual distress, they will not run to Jesus as their Savior. See, that's the definition of real Christianity. To escape from God's wrath, to feel the terror of an awakened conscience, and to know that only Jesus can take that wrath and condemnation away from you. In conclusion... Uh, I've been reading another writer called this, uh, Paul Thoreau, I think is his name. He's quite a famous guy if you ever hear of him. He writes a lot of travel books and he's getting very old now. And he wrote his last uh, guest travel book on Africa. And he says that the reason why he returned to Africa to write his travel book was because he was getting really fed up with uh, all his friends back at home. Because he said that so much of his conversations were filled with trivia you know, trivia about sports and dinner conversations about fashion and food and the latest mobile phones. And uh, time was filled with Twitter, Facebook and mobile games, right? And he says it's a tragedy for a person's mind to be filled with trivia and not the really important things in life. Well, Jesus had no time for trivia 
with Nicodemus. And John the Baptist had no time for trivia too with his disciples. What was really important was the kingdom of God, eternal life, to be born again and to believe in the Son of God lifted up on the cross. See, the offer of salvation, the kingdom of God, is available to everyone. Everyone can benefit from it. The cross and the power of Jesus and His death on the cross is, is, is broad enough for the whole world to receive forgiveness. But it's only whether we want to receive that forgiveness. So let me give you an illustration, right? Uh, I have my car across in the helping hand. So I want to give you my car, okay? But this is just an illustration, right? I want to give you my car, but in order for you to benefit from my gift, you need to take my keys, right, to go and drive the car. Without you taking my keys, I can give you my car, but you don't benefit from my car because you do not take the gift. You do not take the keys in your hands and you do not drive the car. The car is sitting there, the gift is all waiting, but there's no benefit to you. In the same way, what Jesus does is the same, right? He has died on the cross. The gift is ready. The benefits are all there. It's only whether you want to believe, you want to look up at the lifted Christ, whether you want to be born again. It's only whether you want to take it or not. Now, if you're here today and you have not taken this wonderful gift that God has given because He loves you so much even though you don't deserve it, then you ask yourself, why? Why don't you want to take the gift of the kingdom of God? Why don't you want to take the gift of eternal life? Again, I was reading uh, some articles last week and I was reading this book called Pure Joy. And there's this French film, right? Uh, it's up here, called uh, Chocolate. Okay, the, the, obviously the French spell it differently. Chocolat. That's nothing, right? I don't know how the French pronounce it, right? And, uh, oh, Chocolat, sorry. Okay, sorry, Esther, Esther knows, probably seen the movie. Anyway, the movie really is, is about uh, this guy, you know, Johnny Depp, right? Actually, this is a, the American remake, lah. So there's Johnny Depp and Juliette Binochet. I don't know if you pronounce it right, right anyway. But, but, but it's all about how Johnny Depp and, and Juliet, they, 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 you know, they present a picture of the world where, you know, you, you, you seek pleasure in like chocolates and food and wine and relationships and sex and everything. But on the other side of uh, the picture in this cinema movie, there, there is a, a person who's against this lifestyle. And who is this person? Okay, next slide. There's this Roman Catholic priest. And he paints a very sad, repressed picture, right? Uh, the, 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 a picture of where he goes around trying to deny joy to people. And it's a very deeply unattractive religion. But that's the way the world sees Christ and Christianity, right? It sees that, you know, when, 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 when Jesus comes to the world, he just comes to take away all the fun out of it, you know, the chocolates and the, the food, and the sex, and everything else. And uh, really, it's a choice between living, you know, under this terrible tyranny of, of, of a joy-sucking and, and, and you know, repressive religion, or you can have fun and enjoy all these things, right? But then as I was thinking about it, it's exactly the darkness and the light, isn't it? Because the darkness doesn't want the light. The darkness enjoys the things of darkness. The darkness will not receive the light because it enjoys its sin. 
Jesus didn't come into the world to take away chocolates, by the way. Right? And Jesus didn't come into the world to take away food. Right? But He came not to condemn the world, but to save the world. But the world doesn't want to be saved. Again, last week I was reading a, a blog, and there was this American guy, he's talking about how he loves watching British serials. But his observation was that the, a lot of British serials that he watches are smutty and anti-religious, but well-written and well-acted. I was thinking, actually, in many ways that's true. Because, you know, smarty means sexual and crude, right? You know, smarty means, like, you know, very sort of like uh, sexual, a lot of sexuality in it. I was thinking, in many ways, if you want to be smarty, you cannot be religious. You know, those two things cannot fit together. It's like water and oil, right? Chalk and cheese. You want to be smarty, then you have to be anti-religious. But that's the way the world would prefer to have it, right? They would prefer to have their smartiness and choose to reject the light. They choose darkness rather than salvation. But what a shame that is, isn't it? Because God has loved the world so much that He sent His Son to save you from condemnation. But the world would rather have its smartiness and to perish. I think to close, it would be helpful if we look at the, what God says again. And maybe uh, it would be helpful if... Um, Okay, we'll read this together. And as we read it together, instead of saying the world, why don't you insert your name? Okay? I'm not, not my name, your name, right? Okay? And when you read it, think of it really personally as this is you. And think of what God has done for you and what your future will be like. So let's read it together. For God so loved, Andrew Ong, right, that he gave his one and only son that... Uh, Believes in Him shall not perish, but have eternal life. For God did not send His Son into the world to condemn you, but to save through Him. If why who believes in Him is not condemned, but whoever does not believe stands condemned already, because he has not believed in the name of God's one and only Son. Amen.